Turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. I want to show you something that can help you tremendously. Now, we know the Bible, and I believe it's inspired of God. But, of course, we have questions about the chapter divisions and the various verses and the numbers of them. And also all the notes that are added. We know those are not part of the Bible. But believe it or not, there are some notes in the Old Schofield Reference Bible that can really help you. And if you have a use of a Bible that uh, belongs to the church right there in the pew in front of you, or if you have an Old Schofield, you'll get more out of tonight than those who may not have an Old Schofield, because I want to just show you a few things that I believe can help you in study the Bible. You can't write down everything, and you can't remember everything. But believe it or not, there are some notes in the Old Schofield Reference Bible that I have to be honest with you that I don't agree with. I don't believe in the gap theory back there in the uh, book of Genesis, and there's a few other places. But overall, majority of the notes that are found in the Old Schofield, I agree with. And it's from a dispensational point of view. And if you don't study the Bible from a point of dispensationalism, you're not going to really know where to put certain scriptures, and you'll find yourself putting them out of place. And uh, you, you've got to have a, a bone structure, a framework. And uh, that's so that, uh, you know, just like your body, if you didn't have any bones, you'd just be a big old <laughs> pile of flesh. You couldn't do anything. You can't go anywhere. And there's the way it is with a lot of people who have a lot of knowledge about the Bible, but they have no doctrinal bone structure. So there's things that you know, this goes here, this goes here. And then when you know where you got some solid doctrine, that you can hang the meat on it. But without that, then you kind of get lost. And I believe dispensational teaching will greatly enhance your understanding of the Scripture. But we've been talking about, last night and this morning, about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here in the book of Matthew, and you'll notice here, Matthew chapter 27, where it makes the statement in verse 51, that when Christ died on that cross... It makes a statement here because in verse 50, he yielded up the ghost, so he passed away. He died. In verse 51, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. The earth did quake, the rocks rent, graves were opened, many bodies of the saints which slept arose, came out of the graves after his resurrection, went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now that'd be enough to scare the average person half to death. Especially when you just buried him a month ago, and here's Aunt Susie walking in the streets all of a sudden. And um, I was told that uh, this man and woman, they went to Israel, and while he was over there, uh, well, her husband died. And uh, so uh, they want to know if they, you know, wanted just to bury him right there. And she said, no, 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 no. She says, I, I want to take him back to America. She said, well, it's a lot cheaper here. Yes, but... The last time I heard some guy died over here, he came back from the dead. And so she didn't want that possibility of something happening to him. But now what I want you to do is right there in your notes, down there in your notes where you see the number two, right in the middle of the, your notes, see the word literally dismissed his spirit? How many found that? How many found it? All right, so half of you are not with me yet. On page 1042 in an old Schofield reference Bible, in the middle of the page, down below in the notes, dismissed his spirit. You found that. Now it says the Greek implies an act of the will. 
This expression taken from Mark 6, uh, 15 and Luke 23, John 19, differentiates the death of Christ from all other physical death. He died by his own volition when he could say of his redemptive work, it is finished. Now, I love some of the notes that are found because you don't have to know everything and remember everything. But there are some great men who have come along and studied the scriptures and they put down some notes that can help you. They're not inspired, but they can help you to have a, a general idea what it could mean. And uh, otherwise, you might want to live another 40, 50 years to get the knowledge that they've gained. So if you don't have to reinvent the wheel, don't reinvent the wheel. You can learn from a lot of good people. The reason you come to church sometimes is because you think, well, maybe the preacher knows something about that verse that I don't know. And he might even remind you of things that you're supposed to do. He might rebuke you, might encourage you a little bit. But whatever the Word of God says, we're supposed to be faithful and teach the Word of God. I'll have to admit, I don't know everything. So I do a lot of reading. I do a lot of studying. I very seldom ever quote somebody as the authority on the Scriptures because I believe the Scriptures is the authority. Man is not the authority. I am not the authority. I am simply a student of the Word, but I believe that I should study it and try to rightly divide it and then teach what I believe that God honestly says. So when it comes to salvation, I believe I'm right dead on the money. But there's other few things, might be on prophecy, that, well, you know, you got to give cut Yankee a little slack on that. But here I want you to see this. When he makes a statement here, he died by his own volition. When he could say of his redemptive work, it is finished. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. That's what he says in the Gospel of John in chapter 10. When he made the statement, I have the power to lay down my life and to take it up again. Now, you and I, we don't have that power to do that. Or you may take your life, <laughs> but you can't bring it back. Look at the next statement. When we talk about the veil was rent from top to bottom, we referred to that this morning. But notice what he says at number three. The veil which was rent was the veil which divided the holy place into which the priest entered from the holy of holies, into which only the high priest might enter on the day of atonement. The rending of that veil, which was a type of the human body of Christ, See, in Hebrews chapter 10, it makes that statement that the, the veil was a, or his body was a type of this veil that was torn for us. And so as he died on that cross, he opened up the veil and made a way for you and I to have access unto the Father. Now, I referred to that, but I want you to know, Yankee didn't think of everything. I did learn a few things from Dr. Stanford and Dr. Mark Camber and Reverend Miller and Dr. Seymour and a host of people over the years. And sometimes we get it right, and sometimes we may not be as right. There is no way that Bob and Bob and Phil, even though we're all from Florida Bible College, we're not going to agree perfectly on everything. But we should agree on what the gospel is. That's a heaven and hell issue. There's other things that we might not always agree on. Dr. Hank Linson was a great soul winner. There's a lot of people that I still run into that trust the Lord because of Hank Lindstrom. But did we agree on everything? No. How long have you been married? 45. <laughs> <laughs> I was just asking a rhetorical question, you know. 
And then I heard this voice from out of heaven saying, 45. But does that mean because you have been married so long, you know each other so well, that you are always on the same page? Do you perfectly agree with that? Do you perfectly agree? Uh, Lynn, do you want to say anything? Uh, <laughs> do you perfectly agree with everything that that person says? No, because you still have disagreements. And so when it comes to the scripture, you may agree with me on a lot of stuff, but there may be some things you don't agree with. I mean, you'd be wrong, but I mean, it's just possible. It's just, it's just possible. But look back here at this veil thing. I want you to see it down at the bottom of the page there. It says the rending of this thing. And then it makes this statement here at number, look at number four. That these bodies, now there's bodies that also came out of the graves after his resurrection. So I've had people want to know, well, what about those people? Did all of them go up or were they all resurrected? Well, it doesn't really say. So look at number four, that these bodies return to their graves is not said and may not be inferred. The wave sheaf, which is from Leviticus, typifies the resurrection of Christ. But a sheaf implies plurality. It was a single corn of wheat that fell into the ground in the crucifixion and entombment of Christ. It was a sheaf which came forth in resurrection. The inference is that these saints with the spirits of just men made perfect from paradise, went with Jesus into heaven. Now, all of those that were in this place called Sheol in the Old Testament, in the place of paradise, Abraham's bosom, that Christ took those people out because they were there on what we call the layaway plan. All women know what a layaway plan is. The payment was made, and Christ led captivity captive and took those to heaven. Now, it doesn't mean that all of these that were taken up walked the streets of Jerusalem. But evidently, many did, because it says right there, many bodies of the saints which slept arose. Now, what not that? You're talking about the walking dead? Now, these are alive, and they were raptured out of here. I don't believe they died again. But then... I don't have a scripture that proves it. It's just be a little Yankeeology. So you don't have to agree with every little thing because you don't really know which, you know, what some of the details are. We don't have all these answers. Only that I've had a lot of people tell me they didn't even know that was in the book of Matthew until I told them, hey, it's right there. And they never saw that before. But it's been right there all the line. I didn't write it and put it in there. But now all this is important. Now, when you start studying the order of events concerning the resurrection, or what happened when, who came at what time of the day, and who met who, and who ran here, and if you try to get all those sequences together, you could go nuts. And you will have a difficult time. Now, you can do it, but you'll have to figure out, is there any reason for it? Is there a reason for you to go half crazy? And then after you have figured it all out, who cares about most of it? All you need to know is Jesus came and he died. And three days later, he came back from the dead. Now, I know that a lot of times we want to know, well, did he die on Friday 
or did he die on a Wednesday? And so there's a problem because if he died on a Friday, the next day, the scribes and the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they came to see the, the Romans and told them that, um, you know, that deceiver said that after three days he's going to rise again. Well, the next day would have been, if it was died on a Friday, on the Saturday, well, then how do you get three days from Saturday? It's impossible. The most you can get would be a day and a half if you can even squeeze that out of it. So there's a hard time trying to put three days and three nights in there. So while we're right here, I want you to look in Matthew 27. Look in verse 62. Now, uh, look first of all there in verse 57 because he says, When the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. And he went to Pilate, begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. Now when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulchre and departed. And there was Mary and Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, sitting over against the sepulchre. Now the next day, now the next day, this was the evening, and Christ was off the cross, and he was being you know, taken care of so they could be put into the tomb it would probably have to be after that six o'clock that night. So if that's the case, then in verse 62, the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees came together unto Pilate. Now, if this was the, the regular Sabbath day, I don't believe these chief priests and Pharisees would have been doing this. They wouldn't have been going anywhere because they weren't supposed to walk so far. They couldn't do any work. They couldn't do anything like that. So I don't believe they would break the law just to do that, unless this was a special high day, another Sabbath that was take place. So how can you get two Sabbaths in between Friday and Sunday? I don't think that's going to happen. So there is a possibility that he says here in verse 63, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day. So that was from that day, which would have been if he died on a Friday. Well, he says on the next day, this took place. And so now guard it till the third day. Now, if you thought he was going to come back on the third day, would you want just one hour of that day? Or would you think that would mean until the completion of that day? Because he could come back any part of that day and da-da, he kept his word. So I believe they would have guarded it until the end completion of the third day. Now, how would you get three days from Friday? And he rose again on the first day of the week. It's virtually impossible. So therefore, I do believe there's a good possibility that he was crucified on a Wednesday. And by six o'clock that night, he was off the cross because that started the next day, which would have been a, a high day, the, the Passover that they were talking about having there. And then you had Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Three days, three nights, and you got it covered. It works out better, but am I absolutely 100% correct? Well, I think so. But that doesn't mean everybody agrees with that. You'll have, there's a lot of good people in this world, preachers, that don't always fall on the same side. But that doesn't mean that they're wicked and ungodly. It's just that you have a difference of opinion on, on something 
and maybe they think in their mind it's a part of any day makes it a third day. So fine, let it go. It's not worth breaking fellowship over because not everybody's going to see everything the same way. But the key thing is, last night they showed on TV Killing Jesus. Anybody see that? They came out and put this movie on Killing Jesus, written or done by um, O'Reilly. And after you done watched the whole thing, after he established that Peter was the rock, and that he went to Rome and started the Catholic Church, there's no purpose in the movie. There's no real reason for the movie. It doesn't tell you why did he die. Who did he die for? How to have eternal life? And all you had to do is trust. There's nothing to it. All these movies they make about Christ and so forth is nothing but to make money off of. And I can't stand it. All they had to do is give me five minutes. And I could have told them more than all that whole movie they watched. Because they never learned the purpose. Why did Christ die? So that we can go to heaven. That's what it's about. And that he paid for our sins. And the resurrection is the proof of all of that. So anyway, I want you to look down there at the bottom of your page into the note area. This is on page 1043, but look down at the notes. So just very quickly look at number one, the order of events. You see, you don't have to restudy it to try to figure it out who did what when. Take what has already been done and you can look at it and blow it up some and copy and paste and do all the things you want to and outline it yourself. Then you can study it better, but unless you have got a photographic memory, you can't remember all the passages and try to put them and get them all in sync and who did what when because you can just about lose your mind. I would sit for hours and hours and hours reading and studying all of that there, going back and forth, trying to write it down and trying to remember things. And then one day I looked down there and thought, I don't believe this. <laughs> they already done done it. All I had to do was read it right there. And it would have helped me so much, but I, I didn't know that was there. But look at this. The order of events combining the four narratives is as follows. Three women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, uh, start for the sepulchre, followed by other women bearing spices. The three find the stone rolled away. Mary Magdalene goes to tell the disciples. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, draws near the tomb and sees the angel of the Lord, then goes back to meet the other woman following with the spices. Meanwhile, Peter and John, warned by Mary Magdalene, arrive, look in, go away. Mary Magdalene returns weeping, sees the two angels, and then Jesus goes as he bade her to tell the disciples, Mary, mother of James and Joseph. He says, meanwhile, has met the women with the spices and returning with them. They see the two angels. They also receive the angelic message and going to seek the disciples are met by Jesus. Now, see, there you have it. You read all four Gospels. Now, wouldn't that help you? Now, you can take that, and with those scriptures, you can try to see what you think the sequence is. Because some people say, I have an inquiring mind, and I want to know. Well, have fun. And then when you get done, and you're trying to figure it all out, it really won't change anything in the world. It will not cause you probably to win one soul more. But there are some things that are interesting in the scriptures, and 
I believe God put it here and it's inspired of God and we should read it and try to understand. Now, I want you to look down at the bottom of the page. The order of our Lord's appearances would seem to be on the day of His resurrection to Mary Magdalene. Number two, to the women returning from the tomb with the angelic message. To Peter, number three, to Peter probably in the afternoon. And number four, to the Emmaus disciples toward evening. Number five, to the apostles except Thomas. Remember, he wasn't there the first time. Eight days afterwards, to the apostles, Thomas being present. And then goes to Galilee. And in Galilee, number one, to the seven of the, at, uh, by the lake of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, to number one there, to the seven of the lake of Tiberias, number two, on a mountain to the apostles and 500 brethren at Jerusalem and Bethany again, to James, to the eleven, and then to Paul near Damascus in the temple, to Stephen outside of Jerusalem, and to John on the Isle of Patmos. So there you have these manifestations of Jesus Christ in person and seeing Him in a vision and so forth. Thus, a lot of people have done a lot of work and can help you tremendously in studying some of these things. That doesn't mean everything they say is true. If you can find error, then you found some error and you learn something and you grow a little bit. But compare all notes with what the Word of God says. Don't compare the Word of God with what they say. You just use that, and then you check it and see whether or not, could that have been the truth? Is that really the way it is? And study, study, study. That's what is studying. Studying is a weariness of the flesh. Where does it say that? Where? Ecclesiastes, the last chapter. Studying is a weariness of the flesh. Nobody likes to really study, but there's an advantage of studying. Wouldn't you like to dig into the Word of God and find things for yourself? Find some little truth that nobody told you about. Now, I have done this, and I found a lot of little jewels, and I think, Yankee, you found this all by yourself. That nobody has ever seen that truth before. And then I'll be listening to somebody on radio or some little book and some little article, and they said the same thing, and I thought... I found it first. I just can't stand it. Somebody done found it before me. And lo and behold, nothing new under the sun. They say if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it ain't new. I don't know if that's a good statement or not. But anyway, it's a statement. Now, I want you to look at the next statement down here in Matthew chapter 28. Where it says in number one, you'll see there number one in the notes with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ begins the dispensation of the grace of God. See, the church begins on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ. Pentecost means 50. So it's 50 days from the resurrection of Christ. The church age began. Now, the great commission, the great cause, the great compassion, which is mentioned right here in verse 18, 19, and 20, this was given before the day of Pentecost, and they were commanded to go into all the world, 
but they were also commanded not to go until they were endued by power of the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost. And so that's found in the book of Luke in chapter 24. So even though they were commanded to go, they were commanded to wait until the endowment of power. And that's why in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. And so they were to be witnesses in all the world once the Holy Spirit came. But the Holy Spirit came in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Now, notice down here at these statements where it says, which is defined as his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus and the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Under grace, God freely gives to the believing sinner eternal life, accounts to him a perfect righteousness, and accords to him a perfect position. Sounds like he went to Florida Bible College. Well, ain't that what we believe? Ain't that what we teach? And I don't think you'll find anywhere in those notes throughout the Old Testament or New Testament where a man is saved by works, or it tells you to turn from your sins and make Christ the Lord and the master of your life in order to be saved. I believe overall, most of it is very, very good and solid teaching. I have people who have wrote letters to me, and they have chewed me out because I use an old Schofield reference Bible. I mean, taking me to task, telling me how bad it is, and believing in dispensations. And uh, one man told me, he says, I don't believe that you ought to be teaching dispensations because they've seen my chart. My chart is a dispensational chart, different periods of time and how God deals with man regarding a specific responsibility and consequences if you fail to do what God says do. And so it's laid out in seven different dispensations. I believe it's the truth. So I get raked over the coals from some good old independent fundamental Bible-believing missionary-minded Baptist, believe it or not. And so if I didn't believe that what I believe is the truth, I wouldn't know what in the world to teach because I've been knocked on just about everything I teach. I teach that salvation is by simply believing. So I've got letters from people who cheap grace, cheap grace, easy believism. You'll see some of the letters I get sometimes. But I know what I believe. And therefore, when the, everything comes and the various winds and so forth, you, you know what you believe. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it. Don't believe it just because what the preacher says. When you get to heaven and you didn't do what God says do, well, Yankee said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think that's going to be a good excuse. You better tell him that the Yankee told the truth and I didn't listen to him. But we all have to answer to the Lord for ourselves. So know what you believe and know why. You know what I really enjoyed? Rick Ryder was here this morning. Anybody know Rick Ryder? Rick Ryder says he went into somebody's Sunday school class. I don't even know who it was. He went into yours. All right, he came out and he was just bragging. He was, he was in my class and somebody stole him and got him to go into his class. And so he says, um, as he was listening and so on, he says, I just wanted to know and see if the people here all teach the same thing like Hank. You know, kind of compare like Hank. But he didn't naturally say that because, I mean, because he had been here before and, and he'd been up there in the mountains, you know, and, 
And uh, so I, I really like Rick. He's a great guy. He loves the Lord. He's good on the gospel. And he says, the teachers that you have, he says, you've done a good job. You put some good people in the right place. <laughs> and so I told him, I says, we are so fortunate here. I said, you stop and think. We got two sharp ladies. We've got Cindy here and we've got um, Mary Brooks, two ladies that teach great class. They're solid. They know what they believe. And, 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 and so we don't have to worry about them, I hope. And then we have, and then we have their husbands that teach. Here's Bob and Bob. And they've got great teachers. And uh, Gary Steffen is teaching his class. But all the teachers that we have are solid teachers. Louis back there, he's been teaching for 50 years now or something like that off and on. <laughs> but Louis, he's, he's solid. We don't have to worry about is, is Louis straight or not. But uh, you're, you're his instructor. You're, you're keeping an eye on him. But you listen, there's a lot of churches that don't have strong pillars like this. And these are, they're great. And this morning, whenever we was listening to the choir and all that they're doing, and uh, you hear, you know, Peter doing what he's doing and Jesse doing what he's doing, and just the, the various individuals, they're solid. I mean, if I had to, you know, go back to Georgia for another two weeks or something, I don't have to worry about, is there anybody here that can fill in for me? We've got about eight or nine or ten people that can speak just like that. They're getting to where they want me to leave so they can do some more preaching. And you know what makes me feel good is whenever I leave and I say, I'll let Peter speak over there for me. He comes thanking me. I mean, like I did him such a great favor. No, he did me a great favor because I don't have to worry about what he has to say. And Bob, he speaks for me and goes down to the Bible study. And I've had him do the radio broadcast. But I don't have to worry about, oh, no, are they doctrinally strong? This is what a church has to be. A church is supposed to have strong pillars in the church. You know, whenever the Bible says that when Paul in the book of Galatians in chapter 2, he went to Jerusalem, he saw the pillars in the church. Now, he was impressed with the people, but they were pillars in the church. That means that they are the ones that are the anchors. These are the ones that are the stalwarts of the faith. And so that's what you're looking for is people that are strong in the Lord. So learn that. Be, be found faithful in all these things. Now, so these dispensations are very important. But look in the middle of verse 1 one more time at number 1 down there. Under grace, God freely gives to the believing sinner eternal life, accounts to him a perfect righteousness, and accords to him a perfect position. The predicted results of this sixth testing of man are the salvation of all who believe, judgment upon an unbelieving world, and an apostate church. The next statement, man's state at the beginning of the dispensation of grace, man's responsibility under grace, and his predicted failure, the judgment, See, there's so many things that can help you to, to know what to study, how to study, what, you know, is the perspective of the portion of Scripture. There's a lot of good things you can find in the notes. Now, you can buy a lot of books and things like that, or you could study the old Schofield Reference Bible notes, and I don't think you're going to go too far off. They're not perfect, no, but there's a lot of good teaching there. The pastor isn't perfect, and I hate, I hate to say that Hank Liston wasn't perfect either. And neither are these guys. 
None of us are perfect. Everybody is flawed. Some more than others. But anyway, everybody is flawed. Now, look at the next thing. The last thing on here. The word is in the singular. You say, what are you talking about? See up here in verse 19. He says, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name. See that word name? And there's a little two beside the word name. So you go down here and you know that number two is the answer explaining that. You see there in verse 19 where it says go, you see the little one. You go down there and you find that little one. And you know it's talking about that. So it's explaining it. When you see the little A's and B's and C's and so forth like that, you'll notice those are in the middle. And so you'll find those in the middle and they give you a, a verse. Usually one in the Old Testament then one in the, in the uh, New Testament. And there'll be like the, a beginning and an ending. But those are some great helps that can help you in the studying of the Bible. But notice what he says here. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Then you go down there to number two where it says that he subsists. The word is in the singular, the name, not names. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the final name of the one true God. It affirms, one, that God is one. Two, that He subsists in a personality which is threefold, indicated by relationship as Father and Son, by the mode of being as a spirit, and by the different part taken by the Godhead in manifestations and in the work of redemption. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all involved in this work of redemption that we spoke about last night. And you'll also notice in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke, the three persons are in manifestation together. So you can look at those and you'll find, kind of see that there's uh, the Father speaks from heaven, the, the dove comes down like the Holy Spirit, and there's Jesus. Now, is there three God? No, there's only one God. And so the conjunction, number three there, in one name of the three affirms equality and oneness of substance. In other words, all three are God, baptized in the name, not names of, the name. So in Jesus' name, we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's why that is so important. Now, when you get into the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, which we call the resurrection chapter, there is a verse in there that talks about if there is no resurrection, then why do we baptize for the dead? So some people have taken that and says, okay, we're going to baptize for the dead. And so the Mormon church has gone the town baptizing for everybody because you got to baptize for the dead. No, baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, why is there a baptism? Baptism is a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Christ on the cross, he died, was buried, rose again. So when we are water baptized, we are placed under the water, buried, rose again. So the baptism is why we picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But if there's no resurrection, why are we being baptized as though something died? Because that is the truth. Christ did die, and He did come back from the dead, and we are believing that He did it for us. So when we're baptized in water, it's a picture of your death. Your burial and your resurrection because he did it for you. So anyway, I believe that that is something that's good to know. And I don't want you to say, well, I can't read those 
because, you know, those are not inspired of God. No, but there are some good notes that can help you in your Bible study. I trust most of the Schofield Reference Bible notes. Not all of them, but there's a lot of them that I do. Look up here. This is you and me, and this is sin. We all have sin on us. God loves us. Now, He hates our sin, but He loves us. So many people never heard this before. Do you know I got three letters today on the email from people who watched our broadcast this morning? I think one was in Wisconsin, one was in Ohio, several trusted the Lord today. And uh, I think it's just, it's awesome. And they, they watched the broadcast, they loved the music, and uh, they were talking about, you know, how great the music was and all. I think it was just, it's just awesome. And uh, I'm talking about people in hard places watching the broadcast. And I didn't know that this one couple that came to church this morning that was sitting right back there, and another couple that was sitting back over here, they've both been watching the broadcast. So how many people watch our broadcast? I don't know. But I think it's great. But this is you and me, and this is sin. We all have sin on us. Now, God loves us, but He hates our sin. And for us to pay for it is eternal separation from God in hell. So there is a penalty for our sins that needs to be paid. But God loves us and wants us to go to heaven. And to go to heaven, we have to be perfect. And you and I know nobody's perfect. No one's perfect but God. So how can we get to heaven if we have to be perfect? Well, God says, with man, it is impossible you can't make yourself perfect. And if you're not perfect, you can't go. So how's he going to get it done? God says, not by your works, not by the works of the flesh. You cannot save yourself. This hand represents Jesus Christ, who's the Lord, God in the flesh. He came into the world. Now, he had no sin. He didn't have to die. So he took all the sins upon himself and paid for it on the cross, came back from the dead. So you see, whenever we uh, trust Christ, and this is the righteousness of Christ, so what he did is he took our sins and paid for it and came back from the dead. See, he's righteous. Now, the payment for sin has been made, but he hasn't given us his righteousness yet. He hasn't perfected us yet. Only when we believe he did it for us, then he declares us righteous. He gives us his righteousness, and I go to heaven on his righteousness. Now, his righteousness would make me as righteous as God. So I'm good to go. I'm going on his perfection. When God looked at his son... I am in His Son. He sees me in Christ. And that's the only way you and I can get to heaven. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let's pray, shall we? With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, or if you're watching by the Internet, maybe you've heard about it but never understood. The only thing you have to do is it's the only thing you can do. Since it's not by your works then you'll have to believe something. And he wants you to believe that he loves you, died on the cross, paid for your sins, came back from the dead. He wants you to believe that he did that for you. And if you believe he did it for you, he will give you eternal life as a free gift. And he said he would never cast you out. Eternal life is a gift of God, lasts forever. And I pray that you will do that. Before we close in prayer, is there anyone at all say, yes, that made sense to me, and I will trust Christ as my Savior tonight. And preach, I'd like you to pray for him. Would you slip in very quickly and put it right back down? Anyone at all? Father, we are thankful so much for your loving us, proving it by sending your son, guaranteeing it by raising him from the dead. And Father, we look forward to the blessed hope when Jesus comes again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.